0: Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me your host Des Latham. This is episode 67 and as we exit 2018 I'd like to quickly thank all listeners who've taken time and effort to comment pass on ideas and make suggestions throughout the last year that I've been covering this conflict. The list is too long to go through each but your input has been valuable and provided me with extra information as well as moral support. Please keep these comments coming by either direct messaging me on Twitter at Des Latham, which is D-E-S-L-A-T-H-A-M for Mike, or through the email link on the website abwarpodcast.com. The new millennium is about to formally begin. It's the end of December 1900, and we've had a year of warfare, but the Boers remain uncowed. The war that was supposed to last a few months at most has now dragged on for 14 months and shows no signs of ending soon. In this episode, I thought we should concentrate on the role that the media and propaganda played as the war moved from conventional to unconventional, from military camps to concentration camps. Despite Lord Roberts' declaration that the Boers were defeated following his direct march from Cape Town to the Orange Free State capital, Bloemfontein, and then the Transvaal Republic capital, Pretoria, the Boers were not That declaration of victory was premature, perhaps similar to the recent declaration by American President Donald Trump that ISIS has been defeated in Syria. As the unique and eccentric historian Vico noted, history has a curious way of repeating itself, albeit in a spiral, never returning exactly to what occurred before, but elevated by technology and time. Politically loaded declarations about victories are often made to the detriment of the troops left fighting the real wars and in 1900 Lord Roberts was about to leave for England believing it was job done. The irony was his own army could not move around the felt freely and were constantly harassed by what he and others regarded as bandits but were really extremely successful guerrilla war generals. In Syria, too, the U.S. special forces helping the Kurds, for example, have found their enemy continues to control territory, despite apparently being defeated. You can believe what you want regarding Trump or Roberts, but reality always tends to leap up when least expected and subject those who ignore the truth to a blunt reality check. The Austrian military expert Karl von Clausewitz had much to say about ignoring real threats. And the truth was that the Boers were undefeated, As von Klauswitz points out in his seminal work on war, the country must be conquered, for out of the country a new military force may be formed. And the country had not been conquered, the will of the people had not been crushed. A new military force was indeed formed, more mobile, more motivated, more dangerous. Lord Kitchener was now in charge of the British army in South Africa. He could call on more than 200,000 men, but even these were not enough to bring 15,000 Boers to book. The real number available to the Boer commanders was close to 35,000, but most of these could not be mobilized simultaneously. Kitchener began to accelerate what he called the concentration camps, where he ordered Boer women and children to be incarcerated in tent camps stretching along the railway line between Cape Town and Pretoria. He believed this was a way to ensure that the will of the Boers would be crushed. To restrict the movement of the commandos, a network of fences and blockhouses began to be set up in the countryside, something like a wall. Boer combatants who were captured were deported to prison camps overseas, St Helena, Bermuda, Ceylon and the Indian subcontinent. One of the main British priorities was to cut off the Boers' communication network, something which was already apparent at the start of the war when the telegraph lines which passed British stations through from Cape Town or Aden to the north were censored. The Boers had also hacked into these lines at times. Other means of communication came under increasing pressure too. The independent mail service of the South African Republic, which was provided by a German shipping company via Delagoa Bay, was disrupted when the British began their advance in 1900. After Pretoria was captured, the new authorities censored the mail services, commandeered the railway line to Mozambique, and put the press under close surveillance. Moreover, the British Army command ordered the deportation of all individuals who were not born in South Africa and who might have posed a threat to the occupation. Naturally, this was a great blow to the Boers' lines of communication. However, an unintended result of these measures was that many of the people who were repatriated became involved in pro-Boer propaganda campaigns in Europe. After being thrown out of a country, you tend to be motivated to either return or to mobilize against those who threw you out. Prominent members of the Pretoria elites headed organizations that provided help for their compatriots. In addition, their stories and those of other refugees from South Africa were published in the press, drawing attention to what was seen as British imperial cruelty. Letters with useful information for pro-Boer propagandists continued to reach Europe and America via regular mail throughout the war, and at times even the Boer commandos in the field, although increasingly isolated, succeeded in exchanging letters and reports with their representatives globally. In this way, Pro-Boers gathered a significant amount of information that provided an alternative to the representation of the war that was put forward by official British sources and pro-war lobby groups. And as with the war itself, the propaganda war began to take on a guerrilla style too. What in today's world we would call independent non-government organizations or NGOs began to form in Europe and in particular they were based on advocacy. Meanwhile, the British started to impose censorship in the republics, which affected both the press and private correspondence. This was the first time in the world that such extensive measures were taken during a conflict, and propaganda expert Jacqueline Beaumont has argued that the South African war represented an important phase in the development of modern censorship. It happened at the time of increasing access to information, and the more complex the media, the more powerful a tool it could be, either in a hot or cold war. The most obvious form of censorship was the attempt to gain control of the press itself in South Africa. Beaumont has shown that the army increasingly interfered in the work of correspondence, much to the chagrin of the British media, including those who supported the war. Of course, the authorities were far more aggressive towards the Boer periodicals. After the occupation of Bloemfontein and Pretoria, newspapers that had supported the Republican governments were shut down. Dutch journalists who worked at these periodicals, such as Engelberg and Rompel from De Volkstem, were put under pressure to return to Europe or physically extradited. Other Boer newspapers were taken over by British journalists who actively produced propaganda for the new regime. The most famous example was The Friend in Bloemfontein, to which the author Rudyard Kipling contributed for several months. When the war began, the British press regarded the Boers as primitive, using phrases like commandos that flocked across the veldt or herding to suggest they were animals, subhuman, backward. The defeat By the superior British would be an inevitable result of social Darwinism and the influence of the scientific principle of natural selection, these journalists thought. The reporting changed quite quickly once the first battles played out, with British officers describing the honourable qualities of the Boer soldier. By the end of 1900, the English were already acquainted with the famous work of the South African feminist Olive Schreiner, a pro-Boer who opposed the war and who'd written an emotionally powerful account of life on an African farm. Her writing, and then the liberal Emily Hobhouse, who was a thorn in the side of the British, had a huge influence on sentiment. So, by December 1900, many began to view the Boers as fellow Protestants seeking freedom through their actions, in a way, say, the Protestant Swiss had. You remember the story of William Tell, no doubt. And British liberals and writers such as Childers and Amory took up their argument. Others who were to create a shock to the system like J.A. Hobson began writing about imperialism from a more hard-line position politically. Although Hobson did not have a high opinion of the Boers, he wrote that the British attempt to take over the Transvaal was really just about mine owners and their financiers in London more than an honest attempt at opening up South Africa to political and social advance. And reading Hobson assiduously was Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who was heavily influenced by the British Socialist. However, a striking feature of the role of the press during the Boer War was the unusual degree of interaction between the newspapers and the main participants. Lord Roberts had understood that and was a most accessible commander-in-chief. His closest friend at one point during the conflict was a right-wing Welsh journalist called H.A. Gwynne, working for Reuters in South Africa, at least until he suffered an illness and died in Ladysmith during the siege. Roberts was highly aware that the media held his image and he worked hard at keeping journalists happy. Another was Lord Baden-Powell who had survived the siege of Mafeking and was one of the darlings of the British media. He had duly suppressed negative reports about the besieged town, which is a normal administrative process during a war. He was romanticized by both Rudyard Kipling and Arthur Conan Doyle and by besotted journalists who loved him for his humanity and his calm resourcefulness and impish humor. He was careful to pursue a singular identity, sporting a bush hat on his head, later adopted by the Boy Scout movement, and adopting a healthy outdoor lifestyle, dominating the felt through innovation and inspiration. The man who was called Impieza or Wolf cultivated media coverage while hiding the fact that he threw thousands of black residents out of Mafeking to die of starvation on the felt. This was quietly forgotten in the midst of the general carnage of the Anglo-Boer War, the truth suffering once more. But by December 1900, the number of reporters in South Africa had dwindled as the signs of boredom set in and public attention shifted to new excitements, such as the Boxer Uprising in China. But by January 1901, it was clear that the Boer War had caused a seminal and crucial period in the evolution of British press. The young David Lloyd George, for example, who persuaded the chocolate multimillionaire George Cadbury to buy up the Daily News in the UK and to convert it overnight from a liberal imperialist newspaper to a pro-Boer newspaper. That happened New Year 1901. However, it was the development of a new technology that really caused the British serious headaches in South Africa. It was called the camera. Photography during the Boer War grew in stature, with cameras now far more widely used than in any previous war. The invention of the Eastman Kodak in the late 1890s meant all reporters could carry their own cameras. This was not the only invention. There were others such as the folding pocket camera with its cartridge film and the famous Brownie camera invented in 1900. More than 150,000 of these were manufactured in that year alone, and thousands of those found their way to South Africa. E.W. Smith, for example, of the morning leader, carried a small Brownie camera with him wherever he went, while some soldiers in the British Army also had their own. It was the first war where snapshots were taken by non-professional photographers, whereas in the American Civil War and the Crimean War, large cameras were transported by horses and carriage. The amateurs were shooting photographs of everything that was interesting, and the newspapers were publishing these pictures. And it was the portable camera that was to throw up the horrors of the Boer concentration camps most vividly, similar in a way that the smartphone now captures the true horror of war in Syria, Afghanistan, the Central African Republic, or the Rohingya in Burma and other war zones. In response, the British authorities began to act against journalists directly. These measures were not only confined to the republics, but also affected the publication in the Cape itself. This periodical regularly published accounts of the war from the Boers' perspective, contradicting British coverage. It was an important source for newspapers in Europe that wanted to reflect a balanced view of the war, or at least a view that presented part of the other side. This source of information petered out after the start of Boer guerrilla operations in the Cape Colony just before New Year's Day at the end of 1900, when martial law was proclaimed. One of the measures taken by the Milner administration was the further tightening of censorship and the most obvious target was Onsland. Others began to feel the effects of action. In January 1901, the journalist F.S. Malan was arrested and authorities stopped the periodical from publishing editorials. It seems that, in this respect, the British were quite successful in curbing the supply of pro-Boer information coming from South Africa via the press. But there were also more informal sources which were harder to control. Some of these emerged from prison camps outside South Africa. For example, in the camp of Diatalawa in Salon, inmates often wrote of their experiences but weren't able to publish the information, at least initially. One of the Dutch inmates devised a creative way of dodging the senses, however. After arriving, this man sent a wooden box as a present to H. Day Emmaus, the man who had recruited him to go to the Transvaal in the 1890s. In it, He hid a piece of paper with squares cut out and the accompanying instructions explained that this paper had to be put over future letters so that only the words in the squares were visible. The general contents of these letters were harmless and thus passed the censors without any trouble. The coded words, however, contained information about the situation in the camps and the morale of the inmates, which he asserted was still high. One such message read, Here! Dash! There is complete, dash, unity, dash, fierce hatred, dash, the greatest, dash, resolve, dash, hope for, dash, revenge and, dash, mistrust, dash, with regard to all that, dash, is English. Besides the accounts of those who had been captured, there were also letters from civilians who had not joined the commanders and remained in the towns of the Boer Republics. During the early phases of the war, such epistles were regularly printed in newspapers, but after censorship had been imposed, they often ceased to contain interesting information. At times, however, controversial news did come out, describing the situation in the concentration camps and giving news from the battlefield. Although a substantial number of the secret correspondents were female, contemporaries paid relatively little attention to these women. One of the most interesting was the only woman who explicitly wrote about her experiences as an intelligence agent, Johanna van Varmelo. She had served as a nurse in the concentration camp of Arini between May and July 1901. She was recruited by a former Boer officer to help smuggle information and people in and out of Pretoria. In this capacity, she also sent letters and reports to the Boer representatives in Europe, mainly about the situation in the camps. Johanna van Barmelo also experimented with short reports which she sent directly to the South African Republic delegation. These were written in lemon juice on the inside of envelopes and became visible only after heating. Despite her spectacular method, it does not seem likely that this information significantly contributed to the pro-Boer propaganda campaign and eventually Johanna narrowly avoided being discovered after one of her lemon letters was heated up by the South African sun and some the censors missed the hidden message. At the end of 1900, the Hollander J. Spoolstra wrote a long letter to the Dutch newspapers in which he criticized the situation in the concentration camps and the general circumstances under occupation. The courier who tried to carry this report to Europe was caught and Spoolstra was arrested. Despite protests from prominent Pretoria residents, he was convicted to one year in prison and a fine of 100 pounds. He got off comparatively, lightly. Although the controversial letter was confiscated, the contents still became known because during the hearings in his case, Spulstra summoned around 30 witnesses who corroborated the indictments he had written. Secret agents operating in the settle of Johanna van Varamelo obtained a full report of these proceedings, hid it in a cocoa tin, and gave it to a lady on her way to London. Once there, it reached the anti-war journalist William Stead, who published the full text in one of his pamphlets. Another Dutch correspondent who was arrested because of his secret activities was Cornelius Bruxma, public prosecutor in Johannesburg and a prominent member of the Charity Committee. He wrote highly critical reports about the concentration camp that had been set up at a local racetrack, which he visited regularly. It seems likely that he was the author of one of the first letters that complained about conditions in the camps, which was published in a Dutch newspaper in February 1901, writing under the pseudonym PAX. He continued to report about the deteriorating conditions and also gave estimates of the death toll, which were not mentioned in official British sources at the time. Many of these letters were written under the pseudonym Charles Brooks and addressed to Dr. Williamson, one of the aliases of Willem Leitz, who was the Boer diplomat based in Holland. Brooksma was eventually arrested by the British and charged with high treason because he had apparently written a pamphlet in which he had called for the murder of a prominent member of the British community in the Transvaal. As a result, he was condemned to death under the law of occupation and executed in September 1901. Compared to British coverage of the war, the network that provided information to the pro-Boer propagandists was far less extensive and far less consistent. As a result, Boer propaganda activities did not achieve their objective, namely to induce the great powers to intervene on behalf of the republics. Still, the importance of propaganda during the South African war should not be underestimated. It was the time of the emergence of mass media and the gripping images published in the press and later pictures of the skeleton-like children from the camps made their way from South Africa across the world. There is much more to this topic. I'll return to it later with more details about just how it predated the First World War. The use of images would become more and more important as information for those back home and the effect of unfiltered pictures of death and disaster would play a major role in the Anglo-Boer War and changing the public's perception about the righteousness or otherwise of the British attempts at defeating these South Africans. Controlling what people saw and read would become increasingly important throughout the 20th century as education levels increased globally. But the Second World War controlling every aspect of media was very important for oppressive regimes but we'll have to call a halt at this point as we're out of time. I'll continue with more details about this subject later in our series. So with that it's time to wish everyone a happy new year. May 2019 be fruitful and peaceful. Until next week and next year. Goodbye. am a man mis